If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Now, now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I imagine that about half of you are thinking that this is going to be a stewardship sermon. The text would seem to indicate as such this is the perfect text for Stewardship Sunday. It's way better than the poor widow with her two tiny coins who threw all she had in the offering plate. This is an honest-to-God pastoral appeal for money. There's a part that encourages those who made pledges but haven't given to make good on their pledge. It is appropriate for you who began last year and not only to do something but even desire to do something, now finish doing it. It even makes sure everyone understands that it's not about the amount. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Except it's not Stewardship Sunday, 
and we really don't do Stewardship Sunday or Stewardship Sermons, plus we already took up the offering. So there's not really a chance for someone to be moved to open their wallet a little wider. Some might say that's poor planning. But because Robin and I tend to be equal opportunity irritators, we know it's definitely best to pass the plates before we make anybody mad. <laughs> and for good measure, we put the plates up here so that there aren't any takebacks. No takebacks. When I read the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, I feel bad for Paul. I don't usually, because he's Paul. But I read this text and I know that Paul is having to ask for money and I can't help but sympathize. Fundraising is the worst, especially in church. Paul's mission in this letter was to get the more prosperous churches in Greece and Asia Minor to provide economic assistance for their sister churches who were struggling. And bless his heart, Paul tries a couple of strategies in this short excerpt. He begins with flattery. Now, as you excel in everything, I mean, that's a good way to warm up the crowd. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. You guys are the best. Don't you want to keep being the best? He then proceeds to inspire the Corinthians by pointing out the generosity of other churches who have given to the general fund. I am testing your genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. So in the paragraph just above our scripture reading, Paul had told them all about the congregation in Macedonia. It was the little church that could. While the Christians in Macedonia were poorer than the Corinthians, they readily gave beyond their means. Paul says they were begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry of the saints. Although poor in substance, they were rich in generosity. Surely the Corinthians did not want to be outdone in generosity. Ah, the tactic of sibling rivalry. It's interesting though what strategy Paul did not use. Usually when people ask for money, they paint you a picture why didn't Paul just tell the Corinthians how bad the situation in Jerusalem actually was? The carpet in the sanctuary is ripped and stained. Every chair in the fellowship hall is missing a leg. The roof leaks, so the youth room is just inundated with water every time it rains. Don't you care about the youth? He might then say something about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. He'd done that before in the first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us, But God has arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Instead, Paul eventually gets around to saying, do this 
because this is what followers of Jesus do, because this is what Jesus did. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. But knowing the congregation might start sweating this request, he reminds them that it is not about being poor, per se, but about everyone having enough. He reminds them of the exodus and the distribution of manna to the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. That last verse, verse 15, as it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. I wonder who wrote him back. I wonder which church member wrote back to Paul to tell him what the congregation had decided. Was it the chair of the trustees? Or maybe the hospitality committee? Was it someone like our sister Barbara? If that was the case, it would have been direct and to the point and with a side of sarcasm about him choices. Or maybe it was the men's group. Those guys know how to organize a response. Or maybe it was the guild. I mean, those women, church. If Corinth was anything like Mayflower, there were three opinions for every two church members. And they all sent emails back to the pastor. Maybe it was someone like our Perry Ann Starkey. Yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of the death of Mayflower member Perry Ann Starkey. She was the kind of church member who wrote back to the pastor. On June 30th, 2017, she was killed in a car accident. Her death left us disoriented, stunned. For those who do not know Perry Ann, let me, let her, tell you about herself. You see, Perry Ann wrote her own obituary. It was for a class assignment. At age 68, Perry Ann had enrolled in classes at Oklahoma State University to pursue a degree in psychology, and she was almost halfway finished when the accident happened. It begins, as most obituaries do, with biographical information. Born March 21st, 1946, Perry Foster Starkey, Jr. surrendered quietly on June 28, 2016, after a protracted struggle with the truth. Let me explain. Perry Ann was born Perry Foster. She was always Perry Ann, but it wasn't until age 65 that Perry Ann became fully known to everyone else. The transition came because Perry Foster started to think that death was better than living a lie. But instead of death, Perry chose life. It was not an easy decision. There was a wife of 40 years, two kids, and now grandchildren. There had been a long career in the US Army. Perry Ann had enlisted in the US Army at the height of the Vietnam War. She flew a helicopter over 900 hours, first as a lift pilot and then as a maintenance officer. Upon leaving active duty, she took an appointment as chief warrant officer in the Oklahoma Army National Guard, logging over 2,000 hours of accident-free flying. 
and later working as an air traffic controller. After 22 years of service, she retired, but didn't stay retired long. Within months, she went back to the FAA as an instructor teaching newly hired air traffic controllers. Perry Ann left her instructor position to return to work as an air traffic controller in Afghanistan and then later Uzbekistan. So, yeah, being Perry Ann was not simply a decision to live more authentically. It was a decision that would confuse people and disrupt a calm retirement. Perry Ann never denied the heavy impact this had on her family. In fact, that was what had inspired her to pursue a psychology degree. She wanted to become a therapist for family members of transgender people. It was a decision that would elicit stares, questions, and force her to navigate a nation that was grateful for his service, but uncomfortable with her. Somehow, Perry Ann found her way to Mayflower, and she took us by the hand and helped us become a more open and affirming congregation. Perry Ann was a beloved member of the Seekers Sunday School class and a deacon. Many of you knew her as the greeter who welcomed you with a bulletin when you came in the back doors. Perry Ann's pew was lectern side towards the back, but not under the balcony, where she sat behind baby Noah so she could make faces during the service. And Perry Ann, Perry Ann was a prolific emailer to her pastors. Like 87% of this congregation, Perry Ann had no reservations about telling the ministers not only what she thought of our preaching, but what we should be preaching. I actually have an email folder completely dedicated to Perry Ann's correspondence. For Perry Ann, Robin and I had not done enough preaching against drone airstrikes. It is, she wrote me, a whole new form of combat hell. We no longer send the boys off to war. We now maim and destroy our warriors in the air-conditioned comfort of a control room on an airbase right here in the good old USA. Jump out of bed, eat breakfast, kiss the missus, drive to work, kill 20 or 30 people, go home, kiss the missus, and play with the kids while you remember the family you killed two hours ago. Well, hell, just fire up the backyard barbecue and have a beer with the neighbors. She continued, they gave me a better deal, medals and combat pay, and when I got drunk with the guy who was sitting next to me in the helicopter, we turned the world into hell. Perry Ann, a patriot by all accounts, could not stand that this was how America operates. She wouldn't let it go. At one point, she suggested that I preach against drones every Veterans Day and every 4th of July. People are dying, she said. Their people, our people. This is the kind of stuff you lose your soul over. Shine a little light on this darkness, preacher. That's your job. So here it goes, Perry Ann. Drones were first used for surveillance, 
But on February 4, 2002, in Afghanistan, the CIA used an unmanned predator drone in a strike for the first time. The target was Osama bin Laden. Though he turned out not to be there, the strike killed three people nonetheless. The CIA had used drones for surveillance before, but not in military operations and not to kill. What was once a flying camera was now weaponized. In the following years, the Bush administration authorized 50 drone strikes, while the Obama administration greatly expanded the program, authorizing 506 strikes over eight years. These were almost exclusively Predator and Reaper drones piloted by humans hundreds of miles away on mil American military bases, interfacing with systems that resembled playing a video game more than flying a combat fighter. The pilots were so far removed from the killings that if the military itself had a, the military itself had a term for a drone kill. Bug splat. It should have been no surprise that the weekend the Trump administration took office, three authorized US drone strikes took place in Yemen, targeting alleged members of Al-Qaeda. 30 people were killed, including 10 women and children. One of the children killed was the eight-year-old daughter of Anwar Awlaki, the American imam who joined Al-Qaeda in Yemen and who was himself killed by a US drone strike in 2011. The consequences of this new kind of warfare are terrifying. Since the first attacks, the military has continued to expand drone capabilities and integrate them into their operations, including swarm drones, which can communicate autonomously with each other and use collective decision-making to coordinate movements, finding the best way to get to a target, even flying in formation and healing themselves, all without a human telling them how. When a single person gives them a task, for example, go to the local hospital or encircle the blue pickup truck, the drones decide autonomously what the best way to carry it out is without human direction. We are outsourcing life and death decisions to technology. In a 2015 open letter to on, on autonomous weapons from the Future of Life Institute, artificial intelligence and robotics researchers, including Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, warned that with these technologies, the stakes are high. Autonomous weapons have been described as the third revolution in warfare after gunpowder and nuclear arms. I'd offer you a statement by the church against all this, but there really isn't one, unless you count Perry Ann's letter to her pastor. And, and what does this have to do with the church in Corinth and Paul? Well, like them, friends, we have to decide. We have to decide how we're going to live. The short excerpt we read from Paul's letter this morning may seem like it was just a fundraising drive, but it was really about getting the faithful to ask hard questions about identity and how to live in such a way that one who had much did not have too much and the one who had little did not have too little. We are still working on this, still trying to figure out how to live that Christian ethic. 
an ethic that offers an alternative economy, an economy that subverts the hierarchy between rich and poor, whose tools are non-violence, an economy that believes not in trickle-down economics, but that rising tide lifts all boats. The letter is about figuring out how we enact what we say every Sunday, thy will be done. Our daily living cannot be based on a party platform or the editorial page or how the stock market is doing or what makes us feel safe. Our daily living must be rooted in the idea that God's ways are not unchecked greed or unchecked violence. It is an ethic modeled quite courageously by a transgender woman and combat veteran who wanted to hold her beloved church and country to a higher standard. Happy 4th of July, Perry Ann. We miss you. And in a few days, when we celebrate the American dream and our country's values, we will remember our obligation to keep trying to live the vision and compassion of Christ using a transcendent ethic that alone can fulfill the hymn written by Miriam Winter. How beautiful, sincere lament, the wisdom born of tears, the courage called for to repent, the bloodshed through the years. America, America, God grant that we may be a nation blessed with none oppressed, true land of liberty. In that spirit, let's stand and sing together. Number 594, O Beautiful for Spacious Skies. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.